We are in Genesis 16. Genesis 16 this morning. Thank you. I want to say thank you to everyone for allowing me to go last week to a funeral in North Carolina of the dean of the dean of my seminary. It was very important in our formation and in my life. I, I want to communicate to you just how much you owe him. He had a great impact on my life and on, on my maturing, and um, he was very important to me. And you, as, as your pastor, you get to reap the benefits even weekly of m- many of the things he taught me. Um, and so I, I thank you for allowing me to go and honor him and his life. And I'm just so thankful for Jeremy being able to step in and preach last week, did a great job. And I hope that you understand how, what, a, what a gift he is and what a gift the Coons are to this body. So thank you, Jeremy, for doing that. And, and it's, wonderful that, it's wonderful that God's Word and the proclamation of God's Word is not limited to one guy, right? This is not about one person, about one guy. This is about his, God's Word, and we want to exalt God's Word. And if I, if I died tomorrow, which is possible, it's possible, the ministry here at Trinity Church will continue because God's Word continues, and we need to believe that and know that. And it's such a comfort to us to know that. We're in Genesis 16. What a wonderful chapter this is. If you would, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read the entire chapter and then pray for us. Genesis 16 starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please." Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. 
Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come to you this morning in great need, in great need. We have many, many needs on our mind, but our greatest need this morning is you. Our greatest need is you alone. Father, you have given us what we truly need in your Son. You've provided for our greatest need. And this provision should shape everything about our our lives, our thoughts, our wants, our desires, our hopes, everything. But Lord, we need you to, God, we need you to show us again and remind us again of your faithfulness, of what you've provided in your Son, and of how this ought to impact our lives. We need this reminder of your faithfulness again this morning. So we pray that you would meet us here in your word and in the truth. Renew our minds, renew our perspectives once again and that we would leave here today worshiping you and trusting you, turning to you in trust because you are faithful to accomplish your promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your sufficient word and its provision for us even today. We praise you with it in your name. Amen. There's a storyline, an old storyline that Hollywood has used over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of over watching most movies. Uh, there's nothing new. Nobody's creative anymore. And they're just using the same storylines over and over again. Let, let, me, let me see if you've heard this storyline. I don't use a lot of sports illustrations because I know a lot of you don't play sports and you don't like them. So please forgive me. But see if you've heard this storyline. There's a team. This team is terrible. They've got no potential for success. They're more interested in their girlfriends and in their lives. They have no interest in the team. They're out of shape. They're not skilled. They are the bad news bears or whatever else. And then there is a coach that comes in and he's on his last leg too. This is his last chance. He messed up every other place in his life and for some reason he's been given this team and he comes in and he looks at them, first assessment, there's no hope. Why would I pour my effort into this team? There's no hope. And so he doesn't. He doesn't see any reason. And they start their season, and of course, they're terrible, and they lose everything. But something happens 
Maybe a mentor comes in to remind this coach of, of what's true, you know. Or maybe there's a love interest that reminds him of the importance of giving it your all, accomplishing your dreams. And so he turns in his perspective towards these misfits. There's probably one of them that's really good, but they don't believe in themselves. Or they've got a bad home life, and so they can't really reach their potential. And he gives himself to trying to turn this misfit team into winners. And you know, at this point in the movie, what happens? There is a video montage. They're doing push-ups, they're doing drills. At first, the montage shows them kind of not succeeding, but then somewhere in the montage, they start, they start doing it. And they, there's music going, you know, in the background. And all of a sudden, in a five-minute montage, these people have gone from complete losers to believing in themselves, winners, and then comes the championship game or the tournament that they've somehow found themselves in. And they come to the very end, and they either are victorious over the bad team, the evil villain team, or if they don't win, at least at the end of it, they celebrate like they won because they've found out what? They found out that they're not losers. They're not misfits after all. If they would just work hard and believe in themselves and give it their all and believe in each other and have a common purpose together, they can achieve great things. And the credits roll and we all go away with our hearts warmed, wondering, when do we get our video montage? When, when can I have the inspirational person in my life to, to teach me how to stop being the loser that I am and bring me all the way to who I want to be, right? That's Hollywood, and it's been played over and over and over and over and over again. And this is what people think. The least likely, against insurmountable odds, if you will just believe in yourself, you can accomplish great things. Well, we come to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, again, presents us with some characters that are least likely, least likely, the odds that these people are facing in Genesis 16 are insurmountable. They're impossible odds. But contrary to the Hollywood theme that says just believe in yourself and turn to your own strength, the message here of Genesis 16 is the opposite. For God's purposes, the promises of God, the success of of God's promises do not rely upon human strength. The success of God's promises do not rely upon human strength. Chapter 16 opens with words that require us to stop and consider them for a moment. We, we cannot move past too quickly the beginning of Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, 
had borne him no children. On the heels of chapter 15, the covenant affirmation of chapter 15, where God brings Abram out and says, Abram, look at the stars. Can you count them? No, you can't count them. This is exactly how many your offspring will be. The grand covenant affirmation of Genesis 15. On the heels of that, we read these words, Sarai had borne him no children. The heights of chapter 15, look at the stars, have come crashing down to reality. There's not a single child, not one. And Sarah is now 75 years old. 75 years old. Ten years have passed since the promises were first made to Abram. Ten years have passed since their journey down to Egypt to escape the famine in chapter 12. Ten years have passed since her husband had hatched a scheme, remember, to save his own neck by giving her to another man. The account before us this morning bears a striking resemblance to that account in chapter 12. He gives her to another man in chapter 12, and now she will give him another woman. Indeed, this is another story that is not so flattering for the family of promise. But I want you to, to see its sadness. This is a sad story. This is a story that is painful, filled with pain and disappointment disillusionment. Sarah is, Sarah is in deep despair and pain. After the promises given by God, she remains childless. And what was barely a glimmer of a hope at 65, at 65, it's, it's not possible, right? It's, it's, it's a long shot that there's going to be a child. But now at 75, Hope is gone. Every year that had gone by, you can imagine her pain deepening. And in her despair and pain, in her hopelessness, Sarai hatches a plan. Sarah has a maidservant named Hagar. Undoubtedly, this maidservant, Hagar, was given to Sarai while she was sojourning in Egypt. She's an Egyptian. That's where she came from. So the ties here to chapter 12 are thick. In fact, the name Hagar means sojourning. That's her name. What a reminder every time her name is called. She came from that time where we were sojourning down in Egypt. Listen to Sarai's plan. Here you have it in the first couple of verses. Here is the, the plan. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she says. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And a couple of observations for us here as we look at those words. Notice that she first makes a theologically true statement. You see that there? She makes a theologically true statement. 
the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That is theologically true. For it is the Lord who opens and closes the womb. The Lord is the one who decides to give or to not give children. She makes a theologically true statement, but this statement she makes is not anchored in faith. Now, she has said something true about God, but you can tell that she sees God as her nemesis. The Lord is in my way. The Lord has prevented me. The statement is true, but adversarial. You see, it's possible to say true things about God, but not to trust in those truths. In fact, you can see those truths almost as an obstacle. This is how people, I I just have to tell you, this is how people often talk about sovereignty. When people talk about sovereignty, of course, of course we know God is sovereign. I know God is sovereign. But we think of sovereignty as God's meanness towards us. Or as if he is arbitrary in his decisions, not caring about what happens to us. It is true that God is sovereign, but his sovereignty should be a comfort to us. It should be the place we run and trust in. His sovereignty, get this, his sovereignty is never against his people. His sovereignty is never against his people. Do you believe that God is against you because of your current circumstance, situation? Do you believe the situation and circumstance that you find yourself in right now this morning, do you believe Yes, you might say, I know God is sovereign. I know God through his good providence. I I know God is doing all these things. But in your heart, in your mind, you're seeing God as your adversary. Somehow he's in your way. Or he's done something mean, unfair, uncaring to you. Sarai knew the Lord had closed her womb. And she believes this to be wrong of God, unfair on his part. So, at 75 years old, she is giving up on trusting God. God made these promises to me. The Lord obviously has not given me children, and so now it's up to me to accomplish what God has promised. But, in fact, she wants to accomplish her own happiness. That's what you see. She says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. She says to Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children. The word for obtain children there is connected to this idea of being built up. She says, Abram, go into my servant. It may be that through her, I will achieve my goals. I will be built up. 
I will satisfy the longing of my heart for a child. I will obtain my goal through this servant. Now, I think it's important to note here that it's not unheard of in Abram's day to work this way. This was surrogacy before the accomplishments of modern science and technology, medicine. However, however, this is important. Although it's, it's acceptable in Abram's day, just because it's acceptable in Abram's day does not mean that it is acceptable to the Lord. Do you see that there? Just because it is a cultural norm and acceptable in the culture, this does not mean it is acceptable to the Lord. In fact, everything about this story tells us that the decision Sarah and Abram make is a terrible decision. It's an awful misstep and one that has disastrous consequences for everyone involved. We've had two opportunities to see this couple in action. We've had two opportunities to see this marriage. If you think about it, we've not seen. We saw Adam and Eve, that was the first marriage, and then this is the first marriage we've seen since then in detail. We know that some of these guys got married and they had wives and names of the wives and all that, but this is, we've had two opportunities to actually get a close-up view of how their marriage works. And it hasn't been pretty. The first time, as I have already mentioned, Abram comes to Sarai with a plan, and the result is to give her away to another man. Now Sarai wants to give a woman to him. This is awful. We get a crystal clear echo of what we should think about this scene in the phrase that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. You see it there in verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Do you hear the echo of that? Where else have we heard that? Genesis 3. This is what the Lord says to Adam, and you listen because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, we, we could make a joke here. I'm not going to do that. We could make a joke of, hey, guys, you know, listening to your wife <laughs> gets you in trouble. When, in fact, you want to listen to your wife. Probably a majority of the time, God has given you a wife to be your helper. You should listen to your wife. Unless... She's telling you to sleep with another woman. Right? It, it, let, me, let me ask you that. Wives, is the advice you're giving, it, sometimes we could use, hey, you should, the pastor said you should listen to your wife, honey. Well, yes, as long as what advice you're giving is godly advice. It's, it's not just a broad brush statement that you should always listen to your wife. No, is, is your advice godly? Men, let me ask you this question. Are you leading your wives or are you appeasing them? Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Abram took her advice, which was not godly advice. I wonder how many of us men are simply, you know the whole, the whole adage, a happy wife, happy life. 
I wonder how much of, how much of our life we're just trying to make our wife happy. I just want my wife to be happy. Instead of wanting her good, instead of wanting to lead her, we're just taking the easiest path for us. Happy wife, happy life. Abram does not grab hold of his role to lead her. He is like Adam, again, listening, passive, going along with an awful, terrible idea. This is not the only parallel with chapter 3. Listen to the words here. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Do you hear that? Just like Eve took the fruit and gave to Adam so he could eat, now Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Abram in this becomes a polygamist. He's no better than Pharaoh. He's no better than Lamech. This is not God's design. One man, one woman, one lifetime. This is not God's design. And a brief word here about polygamy because it always comes up, right? People always ask, well, the Bible talks about polygamy. If you read carefully, polygamy never works out well. It's always a disaster. Just read it carefully. This is not God's design. While it may be culturally accepted or even expected in their culture, it never goes well. This is sin, to be sure, and the fruit of this sin will not be what Sarai had hoped for. Abram goes in to the servant, and the result of this one-time intimacy, and I do believe it just happened one time, goes in and one, this one-time intimacy, the result is conception. She is with child. And when she saw, the Bible says, when she saw that she had conceived, she then looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar conceives, and instead of this building Sarai up, it tears her down. The pain of her childlessness is exacerbated by the fruitfulness of Hagar's womb. And it seems here that Hagar lords this over her mistress, she puts this in Sarai's face. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the pain and hardship for Sarai here? The difficulty of her barrenness is exacerbated by her sinful scheme. What she thinks is going to fix it actually adds to her suffering. Isn't this the case? Isn't this what always happens with sin? Isn't this what always happens with our schemes? We think what will bring us satisfaction, we think what will bring us to our desired end, we think what will bring us to our desired goal actually adds to our pain. It doesn't help. How many times people have turned to different means to satisfy their immediate longings, and in the end, they just end up emptier, more despairing, farther away from comfort. Our sinful schemes just make our situation worse. And then Sarai turns to Abram. Look at what she does. She blames it on him. May the wrong done to me be on you, Abram. 
I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Again, Genesis 3. This is the blame shifting that takes place after sin has borne its fruit. But Abram is not ready, just as Adam was not. Abram is not ready to take responsibility. He says to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Abram abdicates his responsibility. He should not have listened to the first play, in the first place. He should have stopped the plan before it even came about. He should have corrected Sarai. He should have pointed to the faithfulness of the Lord. He should have encouraged her. He should have led her. He did not. But now that the deed is done, he should take responsibility and protect those involved. He should own up. He should again seek to correct and lead Sarai. But instead, when faced with the anger of his wife, he shrinks back. He puts his hands up. Do what you want. She's your servant after all. What does this have to do with me? And do you know who suffers the most in this? Who suffers the most in this? Hagar suffers. Now we see Hagar is not innocent. Sometimes we think victimhood equals innocence. <laughs> like, like if you want to be righteous in our day and age, if you want to be righteous in our day and age, just call yourself a victim. Just call yourself a victim, then you're in the right. No, no, all of us are sinners. Hagar is the one who rubbed it in Sarai's face. She's not innocent. But in this, she experiences the hardship and the suffering. The anger of Sarai towards Abram that he does not deal with then gets turned upon Hagar. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Now get, get this, Sarai is hurting deeply. You cannot, you cannot put into words how much Sarai is hurting. The, the years, the years, the decades that have gone by without any answer to her prayers for a child. She is hurting deeply. But instead of trusting in Yahweh, instead of turning to the Lord, she turns to her own schemes. Abram listens to his wife in her deceived state and goes along with her plan. The plan doesn't work as Sarai hopes it would, but instead adds to her grief. Then Sarai turns in her grief and her anger and her despair. She aims her anger at Hagar, treats her harshly, and Hagar runs. Did you know that angry people are first hurting people? Have you ever wondered why people are so angry? Have you looked around the world and wondered why people are so angry in their lives and so hurtful in their words and harsh in their actions towards others? Have you ever wondered about that? Hurting people hurt other people. Maybe that will give you a little bit of perspective when somebody mistreats you, treats you harshly. Hurting people that do not learn to trust in the goodness of God, in the good sovereignty of God. Hurting people that do not learn how to trust in God's goodness will turn to their own strength and understanding 
And this will just increase their pain. It will increase their despair. It will increase their hopelessness. When their remedies and their fixes do not work, and our schemes never work, do they? Our fixes and our remedies don't work ever. This just adds to our pain, leaves us disappointed and angry. Angry at God for such a circumstance. Angry at God for his sovereignty. Angry at God for his uncaring treatment of us. And angry at others who we believe are either in our way or, or, God forbid, who experience blessing that we wish we had. Don't you see that that's what's happening with Sarai? Decades, decades of fruitlessness in my womb, and she sleeps with my husband one time, and now she has a baby. And she is so filled with rage and so filled with anger towards the blessing of God. She is envious. She is jealous. She's owned by her envy and her jealousy at others who have God's blessing. Is it possible that you even, even as you sit here, you look around and you say, God, why do you bless all these other people? All these other people, they have a nice family. They, they have nice kids. Lord, they have a nice job. And I, I'm just looking around at all these people that have God's blessing. God, you're not fair to me. Why not give me something? And this envy and this jealousy is actually what anchors your treatment of other people. You lash out at other people. You're harsh with your words. And it, and it comes down to this. You are angry at God. You don't tr think he's treated you rightly. Instead of learning to trust in his sovereign goodness, you've turned to your own schemes and own remedies. When you're angry, and this anger owns you, this jealousy and envy owns you. This story is not favorable towards Abram and Sarai. It is not understanding of their situation. This is the man that just a chapter ago believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. It's not by accident. Chapter 12, he's given the promises. In chapter 12, what's the first thing he does after being given the promises? He fails miserably. Chapter 15, he's given the promises and the covenant is confirmed with him. What's the first thing that happens? He fails miserably. It's as if the scripture is going across the street to show that Abram's, Abram's sovereign choice, Abram's salvation is not based on him. It's based on God's faithfulness. He's not getting God's blessing and God's promises because he deserves it. God's salvation of his people is based on his sovereign choice. And again, he chooses the least likely. He chooses the least likely and gives them the promises. Abram and Sarai have not merited his attention because of their faithfulness. No, no, quite the opposite. He chooses to deliver them in the face of insurmountable odds, in an impossible situation, and he's committed himself, the Lord has committed himself to deliver on his promises, even in the face of Abram and Sarai's faithlessness and rebellion. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the Lord alone will receive the glory for salvation. The Lord alone will receive the glory that he is due. It is his salvation. It's not based on us. 
God's salvation is not about what we get, but about what he gets. But the story is not done. Look then at verse number seven. Up to this point, we've seen the faithlessness of Abram and Sarai, and we see our own faithlessness here mirrored for us. It's amazing how true to life Scripture is over and over again. But the story's not done. Look at what happens, verse seven. The angel of the Lord, so Hagar has fled. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her. This is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in Scripture, 58 times the angel of the Lord. That language is used. Some debate here on whether this is a Christophany or not. A Christophany, big word, but all it means is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. So before Jesus comes, does he appear in the Old Testament somewhere? It's a Christophany. Some debate about whether this is a Christophany or not. It's possible absolutely possible. But what is not debatable is that this messenger represents Yahweh, the Lord. And the narrator depicts this conversation as if it is happening directly between Hagar and Yahweh. You can see that down in verse 13. Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. In Hagar's mind, it's the Lord speaking to her. You are a God of seeing, she names him. Consider how the Lord is represented here in this half of the story. I want you to consider these things. First, he goes and finds Hagar. Hagar has been used and mistreated and abused. She's been victimized. She's been oppressed by the sinful actions of her master. But Yahweh goes and finds her. He also calls her by name there in verse 8. I don't know if you picked up onto it, but up to this point, the narrator has told us her name, but Abram and Sarai have not used her name. To Abram and Sarai, she is just the servant, the slave, the one there to accomplish our purposes. But the Lord uses her name. And the Lord makes her a promise parallel in some ways to the covenant promises. We will see this stated explicitly here in a couple of chapters. God made promises to Abram regarding his offspring. This child in Hagar's womb is Abram's offspring. Now he is not the promised offspring, but he is indeed Abram's offspring. And so he too will become a great people because the Lord always keeps his promises. Although this son that Hagar will have will not be an inheritor of the covenant promises, he will be a great nation and will multiply greatly. The offspring of Hagar will be great. And this offspring will cause no end of trouble for Abram and his descendants. Even up until this day, Ishmael will become the father of the Arab peoples. So you see, even up until this day, Israel continues to experience the consequence of Abram's sin. You see this in verse 12. He will, 
be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, all his brothers. Abram's sin of going down to Egypt brings Hagar into the house. Abram and Sarai's sin has resulted in her being with child. This child would become a father of a multitude that will never cease to be in conflict with the nation of Israel and the people of Abram. But do you see that all of this is a result of God's goodness and God's faithfulness? I want you to also consider the names given to the places and to the Lord Himself here in the second half. The boy's name, look at the boy's name first, the boy that will come to Hagar, his name will be called Ishmael. Ishmael meaning God hears. Get it? God hears the cries of those experiencing affliction. This will be the same name given to another young man whose mother was barren and cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears her cries and gives her a son, Shmuel, Samuel. The barren womb of Hannah is filled, and she calls the boy's name Samuel. God hears. He hears the brokenhearted. He hears the afflicted. And then Hagar gives a name to the Lord, Elroy. Elroi. You are a God of seeing, she says. You have seen me. You have heard my cries, and you have seen me in my distress. Truly, here, she says, I have seen him who looks after me. That's why she calls the place Be'er Lahai Roi, the well of the living one who sees me. The implication of him seeing her is that he will provide for her. The Lord hears her cries and the Lord sees her and will provide for her. Wow! Do you see the implication here? For Sarai and Abram, this actually, God's dealings with Hagar this is an indictment and a rebuke to Sarai and Abram. Do you see this here? The Lord knows Hagar by name. He is faithful to keep his word even to a young slave girl who's been forced into this situation by sinful schemes. He hears her cries. He meets her in her wilderness. He sees her in her despair. And he will provide for her she doesn't escape his notice. He knows her. He hears her. He sees her. Sarai, Sarai, if I know the name of Hagar, a slave girl from Egypt, do you think I don't know your name? Do you think that I don't hear your cries? Do you think that I don't see you and know what it is that you go through? Do you not think that I know you? Do you see who I am, Sarai? I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't left off seeing you. I hear your cries every night. I know your pain. Trust me. Trust me. 
You see, God always knows what He is doing. And He always does everything perfectly. Can you imagine Sarai's pain? If you, if you do the math, it's 60 years. 60 years. She's 75. I mean, then they would have married very early. Over 60 years, this woman has wanted children. Six decades. Most of you are not even 60 years old. You haven't even lived six years. For 60 years, she wants a child. And then the last 10 years, she has the explicit promises of God that year after year after year are not met. They don't come to fruition. Now we look, we look at Sarah, we go, Sarah, how could you not trust God? Of course, this is what's going to happen. Come on, Sarah, have some faith. 60 years and the last 10 years have been probably more painful than the previous 50. Here she is. I don't know what it is, and I might be able to guess because I know some of you pretty well, but I don't know what, what it is that is your hardship this morning. I don't know what it is that is your suffering and your difficulty and your affliction. Do you consider yourself afflicted this morning in some way, shape, or form? Suffering? Experiencing hardship? I, I don't know what it is, but I do know this. I know this. Listen to me. Children, listen to me. The earlier you get this, the better off you'll be, okay? I don't know what your suffering is particularly, but I do know that all of our suffering, all of it, is temporal. All of it. Do you know what temporal means? It means temporary. It means it's not going to last. Sixty years she suffered, and she's going to have a few more years, by the way. But it would be a tragedy, just like it was a tragedy for Sarai to forsake the Lord. Listen to me in your suffering. It would be a tragedy for you to forsake God because of temporal suffering. It would be a tragedy to forsake God because he has not met your temporal desires. It would be a tragedy to forsake God because of temporal suffering when what he has promised is of eternal significance. His promises are of eternal significance. Our suffering is temporal. Our suffering is short-lived in comparison to what he has promised us. It would be a tragedy to forsake a God who has promised great promises of eternal significance because of temporal suffering. And I, I think that is where most of us live, our struggle, because we think this life is longer than it really is. Sarai forsakes the Lord and His promises and turns to her own efforts. I've got to move forward here. 
Here's the point, and this is, this is what I want you to leave with. Here's the point. I said it at the beginning, I say it here again. The success of God's promises to us, the success of God's purposes, the success of God's promises do not depend upon human strength. The success of God's promises to us do not depend upon human strength. He involves us in what He is doing. Yes, He involves us in what He is doing, but He does not depend on us to accomplish what He has promised. He asks us to trust Him. He asks us to wait on Him. He promises us to grow us, to change us, to transform us. But we cannot accomplish his aims by fleshly means. Human wisdom need not apply. Human ingenuity and effort need to take a back seat. Forsake trusting in yourself and in your own schemes, and in your own paradigm for life, and in your own calculations. Forsake all those things. <laughs> and give yourself over to wholehearted trust in the one who sees, and hears, and knows. The path of faith is not blazed by the arm of man's strength. God's ends are not accomplished by man's means or by the flesh. And this is exactly what Paul, the apostle, picks up on in Galatians 4. Some of you were wondering if I would go to Galatians 4. Maybe you haven't read Galatians 4. Galatians 4, Paul, the apostle, actually uses Genesis 16. This is what he says in Galatians 4, verse 21. He's talking to Jewish people who are being drawn back into the law to circumcision for their place with God's people. And he says to them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham, Abraham, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. What is he saying there? The one that was born to the slave was born out of human effort, human wisdom, human ingenuity, human trying. This was born not according to God's promise, but according to man trying to work it all out for himself. It doesn't work, he says. The son of the free woman, that is Sarai, was born through promise. So Paul sees this same theme. The success of God's promises are not dependent upon human effort and human strength. And I think this is a, a good word for so many of us this morning as we close. This is a good word for us. <laughs> because we often forget that this work of salvation on our behalf, this work of salvation that God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ, this is not attributed to us or anything that we have done or anything that we have earned or anything that we have accomplished, it's not because of us. Hymn number 209. I'll just read a couple lines. 
Rock of Ages. Joel Whitman, where are you? I gave you the reference, 209, okay? Listen to the middle two verses. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All of that, he says, all for sin could not atone. In other words, if I could work as hard as I could, and if I could cry and cry and cry and be zealous and cry, none of that could atone for my sin. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, oh, I'm so foul, he says. I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Some of us struggle with believing that we could be accepted because we indeed are not deserving. You spend so much time worrying about what other people think of you. You spend so much time worrying about not being good enough, not meeting up to the expectations, not meeting to the standards. Listen, your salvation is not based on anything you've done, not anything you are. As was said last week, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin. But some of you, some of you are confident in what you've accomplished. You, you use the church as the place where you can be somebody. You want to talk all the time and tell people of all the things you've accomplished and all the things that you've experienced. You want to tell people how, how successful you are at the Christian life. No. God's purposes, the success of His purposes is not accomplished. They're not accomplished by human effort. All of us stand naked looking to Him for dress. Foul, flying to Him for cleansing. And because of that, because His purposes aren't dependent upon us, we can now live free from our own effort to try to please Him, to try to earn His favor, to try to be something in other people's eyes. We can live in unity and joy knowing that He has accomplished for us His purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word in Genesis 16. Thank you for its reminder to us that our salvation is not based on anything that we have done, but in the work of your Son. He has taken our sin upon himself. He has died for sin and raised again from the dead. And just like you saw and found and heard the cries of Hagar. 
You have heard our cries and our sin. You have seen us and you have provided for us a Savior, a Savior that can cleanse us, a Savior that can make us your own, not by anything that we've done, we are undeserving, but because of your goodness, because of your power, so that you would have all the glory. Give us this right perspective of ourself today. Help us to understand what our life is and what it is not coming to you in humility, confessing. I pray for those who are standing in their own strength this morning, thinking that they will stand before you and be able to give an account of themselves, that you will understand, that you will accept them based on their own works. I pray that you would disabuse them of that wrong thinking, of disastrous thinking, even this morning, and that you would help us all see that we are all on the same level Every single one of us, we are all on the same level at the cross. We praise you and thank you for it. Amen.